Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Philip Goff, professor of philosophy at Durham University and an author. We are talking about one of my favorite topics today, which is consciousness. Consciousness is the most evident of all phenomenons. It's literally the one thing that we can be sure of that exists. And yet we have a very limited understanding of what it is and why it's here. So today, expect to learn the main philosophical positions on consciousness, why Philip thinks the old proposals are insufficient, what time racism means, why Deepak Chopra just won't leave me alone, and much more. Honestly, I feel like I could have a discussion on this for days. I love getting a philosopher on like Philip, who's been in the literature and thinking about this topic for years and years. And then we just get to hear over the space of an hour, everything that he's learned over decades of research. And then we're fully up to speed. We're mostly up to speed about what it is that he's found out. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend. That is the best way to support the show. The only way it grows is people like you sharing it with people like you. For now, please give it up for the wise and wonderful Philip Goff. It's a shame we're only a couple of miles away from each other and yet I've had to use the internet to communicate if you reached out of your window i could probably just shout shout the podcast to you i think just stick a recorder in the middle of it oh it's a crazy time to live in some future time we'll have to get together it is indeed uh you're a philosopher what are you doing talking about consciousness isn't this the job of a neuroscientist or a biologist like why are you here excellent question yeah so i guess yeah i mean there's it's broadly agreed that there's some big profound challenges surrounding consciousness you know we despite our scientific understanding of the brain we don't have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling could somehow produce this inner subjective world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes so a lot of most people are on board with that now but in line with what you've just said i mean a very common reaction is to say okay there's a problem but let's just plug away with our standard ways of investigating the brain and you know we'll crack it um so i don't think that's right i don't think this is just another scientific problem i think there's a number of ways in which the problem of consciousness is radically different from any other scientific problem and that our current scientific approach is really not on its own at least fully equipped to deal with it so should I say more about that? Why is it different? Okay, so here's, here's the most straightforward point. Consciousness is not publicly observable. Right? You can't look inside my head and see my feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness not from observation experiment, but just from our immediate awareness of our feelings. If I'm in pain, I'm just directly aware of my pain. You can't get at it, uh, but I, I'm directly aware of it. Now, science is used to dealing with unobservables, right? Fundamental particles, for example, can't be directly observed. But there's an important difference. In, in all these other cases, we postulate unobservables in order to explain what, what we can observe. So fundamental particles are postulated part of the standard model of particle physics that, you know, explains a huge lot of publicly observable data. 
So the, the whole explanatory enterprise is explaining publicly observable data. In the case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. And that is just a totally different explanatory enterprise. And I think it really constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally. Is, so, that the, yeah. is, is consciousness the only thing that we have that's in that category or is there anything else? I, I think so. I'd be interested to know if you think there are any others. No, I, I, not that I can think of, but I wondered if there was a an armchair philosophy experiment, thought experiment that had come up that had created something similar. Well, well, there are, I mean, I suppose there are other things that some philosophers think we need to make sense of that aren't straightforward scientific data, maybe like the reality of free will or value, facts about value. A lot of philosophers think we need to somehow make sense of facts about right and wrong and good and bad or abstract objects like mathematicians talk about numbers and sets and lots of philosophers think, how do we, how do we fit, fit them into the world? But what's, what's unique about consciousness, I think, and is, makes it just so fascinating is in all these other cases, it's always an option to say maybe the phenomenon doesn't exist, right? Maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are. You know, maybe there aren't really facts about good and bad. Maybe it's just the way we sort of project our feelings onto the world. Uh, maybe abstract objects don't really exist. Maybe it's just a useful fiction. But with consciousness, you know, the idea that nobody's ever really felt pain or seen red, that just seems absolutely insane. And some philosophers do take that line. My good friend Keith Frankish um, takes the line, we can't explain consciousness in conventional scientific terms, so it doesn't exist. It's just like fairy dust or magic, you know, we don't. But, you know, most philosophers think, you know, that that really is beyond the pale. So there's, there is this datum. That's, that we need our theory to account for, but it's not, unlike any other scientific datum, it's not a datum of public observation experiment. Yeah. And so, you know, if, I mean, for a lot of the 20th century, consciousness was a sort of taboo topic. Uh, it wasn't sort of seen as good, you know, proper focus for proper science. Uh, that perhaps the high point was the behaviorists in the 1940s who thought, you know, the only proper science of the mind is what is behavior, you know, what you can observe and measure and quantify. Uh, and you can understand, I think, in a sense, they were right to, to think this isn't a normal scientific thing because it's, you know, it's this kind of invisible thing we can't get at for observation experiment. Now, since I think the 90s, people have thought, no, it is science. You know, we've, we've got to deal with it. But they've forgotten how radically different it is from any other scientific phenomenon. So we're in a kind of, I think we're in a phase of history, we're in a weird middle phase where people do want to deal with it scientifically, but haven't quite got to the point where they realise to do that, we have to really rethink what science is. Yeah, I can't remember who it is, the quote I'm taking, but I remember reading something that said, if it wasn't for the fact that we experience it, the universe would give us no clues that consciousness exists. Exactly. Exactly. That's very nice. I don't know who said that, but it's a nice quote. So like a lot of people think the job of science is to account for the data of observation experiment, right? Once we've done that, if we can have our grand unified theory that can account for all of observation experiment, that's it, job done. Uh, now if, but if you take that religiously, you wouldn't believe in consciousness. 
because it's not known about him that way. Now, someone who's wonderfully consistent on that is Daniel Dennett, who, you know, says science is about publicly observable stuff. Consciousness doesn't fit in, so it doesn't exist. And, I, you know, he's wonderfully consistent. I think most people, you know, me and Dennett are at extremes. Most people, I think, are in a confused in the middle where they do think they, they don't want to say consciousness doesn't exist. But at the same time, they do want to say the only things we believe in are known about on, a, on the basis of experiment. Those two things don't fit together. So I think either, I, and, you know, more and more philosophers are coming to this point. Either you say consciousness doesn't exist, it's a, an illusion like Dennett does or Keith Frankish, or you say we need to rethink science. So the subtitle of my book is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. So I'm not doing science, but I think we need to rethink our scientific approach before we can start making serious explanatory theoretical progress on consciousness. Going back to the why are philosophers here question I had earlier on, no matter how you create a theoretical framework around how we should view consciousness, that doesn't actually change what consciousness is. So the mm. phenomenological experience, the way that it manifests, all of this stuff, it's still going to continue going on whatever way it does, which we currently don't have a satisfactory explanation for. But no matter what you guys come up with, no matter how weird and wonderful and plausible the theories are, nothing's actually going to change about the way that consciousness works. So can we get a satisfying explanation mm. of consciousness from a purely theoretical framework? Yeah, that's a good point. So some people put the problem by saying it's a mystery what consciousness is. You often hear that. it's Nobody knows what consciousness is. I don't like that way of putting it because I think Nothing is more obvious and familiar than, con you know, you know what pain is when you feel it. It's not a mystery what consciousness is. Uh, so, so what are we, I mean, let's come to the point, what are we trying to do here? What, what is, the, what is the, the task, the explanatory task? So I, I think, I mean, the way I've spoken so far is almost as though science doesn't have a role to play. I don't, I don't think that's true. We have a robust and well-developed experimental science of consciousness and we have a interdisciplinary consciousness group here at Durham and I you know I work with neuroscientists all the time but what so, so how does that work um well you you can't directly observe someone's feelings but you can ask them right so you can ask them what they're feeling and what they're experiencing and you can scan their brains at the same time and with an fMRI scanner and you can start to establish correlations or sometimes you can stimulate a bit of the brain if we'll and, and ask someone, you know, what did you feel then? So we start to establish these correlations and we can try and get systematic about it in the early days and trying to put together a general theory of, you know, what in general is, is necessary and sufficient for conscious experience. So, that, so that's the, the, the experimental task we're making progress on, that consciousness is correlated with certain kinds of brain activity. And that's really important data. But that's not the full story because what we then want is an explanation. You know, why is why are certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds of feelings and experience? Why should that be? And I, I don't think you can answer that question with an experiment because consciousness is not publicly observable. So all you can do with experiments is just get more correlations. So at that point, I think we have to turn over to philosophers and just look at the, the various proposals philosophers have offered for explaining why 
certain forms of brain activity go along with certain forms of experience. So that's what I see is, is, the, is the task really explaining why. Why is it that brain activity goes along with experience? And there, and there are various different proposals, and we just have to try and assess them and try and work out which one works best. Give us the rundown then. What's the, I think you talk about three main approaches to answering right. the mystery of consciousness. Dualism. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, when I studied philosophy, there were just two and I got very disillusioned and left for a little bit. And then I discovered this third approach, which is the one I like. So dualism. Um, so dualism is the, is the idea that consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. And we tend to associate this with, this with religion or something spiritual. But actually, the most popular, the most well-known contemporary dualist, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers, calls himself a naturalistic dualist because um, he wants to bring, he thinks consciousness is not physical, but he wants to bring it into the domain of science and think of it as a normal law-governed phenomenon. So, so what he does is he thinks the aim of a science of consciousness, once we've got these correlations from neuroscience, we then postulate psychophysical laws of nature linking up physical brain activity to conscious experiences. Right, so neuroscience tells us, you know, a certain kind of activity in the uh, hypothalamus leads to a feeling of hunger. Chalmers would say, okay, so we postulate a law of nature saying whenever you get that kind of um, brain activity, you get that kind of feeling. It's just a fundamental law of nature. So Chalmers thinks if there was just the laws of physics, there wouldn't be consciousness. We'd all just be sort of mechanisms. But because there are these special psychophysical laws connecting up the physical to consciousness, uh, that ends up in with the result that certain forms of brain activity give rise to consciousness. So, so that's one proposal. I guess the more familiar proposal, just to get two on the table, the materialist proposal says, no, 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 no. There aren't two things here. Feelings just are patterns of neuronal activity so like water just is h2o right so i've got a pint of water here you know that there aren't two things in here the water and the h2o water just is h2o so you know if you consider your feeling of pain and the corresponding pattern of neural neuronal activity the materialist says there aren't two things there that your feeling just is a pattern of neuronal activity so you see so you see that they're two different, very different ways of accounting for the same scientific data. You know, the scientific data is brain activity and experience goes together. Chalmers says they're different things tied together by natural laws. The materialist says they're just the same thing. Uh, so they're, they're the two, I guess, most popular options. What's the mechanism that Chalmers proposes is, is happening? Mm. Because there must be some sort of signal going neurotransmitters mm. chemicals etc is it is this where deepak chopra comes in and starts talking about quantum mechanics i feel like this is where he <laughs> he begins going all woo woo about the the energies and the vibrations uh well i mean the fir first thing to say just before i answer the question is david chalmers is the most unwoo person you can meet you know i mean he's <laughs> compact, he's absolutely total atheist secularist i once asked him i think i said this in my book you know do you have any spiritual or religious feelings and he said only the universe only that the universe is cool right so he's and actually <laughs> what a g 
another uh, contemporary dualist, Martina Niederumelen, who's passionately anti-religious and hates it being connected. So the, these guys, they don't believe in any transcendent spiritual reality. They just believe in feelings, pain, pleasure. And they think, you know, we need to account for this and we can't do it in the normal way. Anyway, but so what's the connection? So, yeah, again, when I was an undergraduate, we were taught the big problem with dualism was what's the connection, how to make intelligible Has to be a mechanism, how, right? Yeah. how the mind, right. This was actually what um, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia challenged Descartes on. You know, the most famous dualist historically was Descartes. And she said, oh, I'll, 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 try, I'll, I'll mess up the quote if I try to remember it. But she, just, she was just mystified by how something utterly non-physical could impact on the brain. And for a, lot, a long time, people took that seriously. I don't think people take that worry seriously anymore for this reason that, um, well, about 100 years later, the great Scottish philosopher David Hume pointed out that actually when it comes to fundamental causal interactions or laws of nature, no one has any explanation. So take the, you know, take the laws of physics. You, I mean, to take a simple example, I, Newton's uh, law of gravity, right? Newton came up with this law of gravity that um, tells us that objects a, attract each other with a force that's dependent on the distance between them and the, and the mass and gave us a nice bit of maths and then people said to him uh okay why does that happen though and he famously said hypothesis non fingo you know showing off in latin i don't frame hypotheses so you know it's not the job of a, of a physicist to say why things happen we just give mathematical laws that describe that it happens now, and you know, later Einstein gives a deeper explanation of gravity in terms of matter curving space-time, and and then and then matter follows the simpler the geodesics through space-time. But he didn't explain, you know, why that happens. He gave the equations. Took him a long time, ten years, but he he doesn't explain why matter curves space-time. You know, when it gets down to the fundamental laws of physics, you just have to say that's just the way it works. So the naturalistic dualist says, well, if you can do that, I can do that. I just think this is a basic law about our universe. If you're, if you're saying that's not fair, that you're applying, David Chalmers would say, a kind of double standard. You don't ask the physicist to explain why laws of physics hold. So why should I have to explain why? And, you know, why the psychophysical laws hold? They're just basic fundamental facts about our universe. Okay. What, what are the main criticisms or what are the reasons why you find dualism and materialism unsatisfying yeah which one do you want first you go for dualism first let's go for dualism or... first um yeah so a, a lot of people think there are just straightforward scientific empirical worries with dualism and the thought is something like if there was you know non-physical consciousness impacting on the brain every second of waking life, that would really show up in our neuroscience. You know, there'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical explanation. It'd be like a poltergeist was playing with the brain and we just don't seem to find that. And so that, that builds a, a kind of disconfirmation of dualism. Actually, the more I talk to neuroscientists, I, I, the less I think we're actually in a, in a position to assess that because, you know, the more I figure, I, I find actually we really don't know that much about how the brain works and you know people get very excited about brain scans but um you know what you have to remember brain scans is every pixel the tiniest pixel 
corresponds to 5.5 million neurons. And, um, you know, so I think, I think what we've got to, here's how I think the current state of our scientific knowledge is that, you know, I think we understand the basic chemistry, how neurons fire and uh, various kinds of neurotransmitter. And we understand a fair bit about, so that's the bottom stuff, and a fair bit about the top stuff, like what large scale bits of the brain do, their functions. What we all know almost nothing about, very little about, is how those large scale functions are realized at the cellular level, how it works basically. And I think until we, you know, to make, to put it in perspective, we're about 70% through putting together a connectome for the maggot brain, which is, you know, smaller than the dot on an eye, you know, we're just so far from, you know, really understanding the, the workings of the 85 billion neurons in the brain. So I'm not, I don't know, the more I talk to neuroscientists, this is the objection I've always made to dualism, but I'm, I'm, I'm maybe less sure that I think we'd have to know a lot more about the physical workings of the brain before we could really be in a position to assess whether there's non-physical influences or not. But anyway, I, so I'm kind of more agnostic about that the more I go on. But the more straightforward worry is, as scientists or philosophers, you want as simple and unified a theory as possible. In dualism, you've got this radical division in nature between the physical things and the non-physical things, and uh, it's very ugly and disunified. If that's what we end up with, that's what we end up with, but all things being equal, it's nicer to go for a more simple and unified theory of reality, and I think there are alternatives. Got you. Materialism, why are you not happy with Materialism. that? Materialism. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, I, I you know, being a sciencey kind of guy, I initially wanted to be a materialist, and just eventually came to the conclusion that this is this is this is a non-starter, really, um, and was a bit lost for a long time. That was like so, me when I tried to enjoy take that's music when I was about eleven. I was like, everyone else seems to think <laughs> that this is cool, but I just just can't get into it, man. I had a problem when I was a little bit younger with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I just when they first came on, and I thought. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Did you get biker, not, mic, biker mice from Mars? Was it? Was that your biker thing? Biker mice from Mars. That was. I think that was a bit later. Um, but then, but then it ended up all my friends were into teenage mutant ninja turtles, and I was really left out for ages. And then I, I don't sort of conform. pretended. Don't conform. I, I did. I'm afraid. I pretended I'd. Oh, I like them all along. And anyway, that was a long time ago. What were we talking about materialism. Um, yeah. So I think the court. It's a big debate, but the core of the issue is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness is an essentially quality-involving phenomenon. If you think about you know, the redness of a red experience, the smell of coffee, the taste of mint, you just can't even describe those qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in that in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're essentially just leaving out those qualities, and, and it's really just leaving out consciousness itself. And you know, so and what I've tried to press, my you know, the, the reason for the title of my book, Galileo's Error, is that you know we shouldn't be surprised that our standard scientific approach can't account for consciousness because our standard scientific approach was designed explicitly to exclude consciousness. So. In 1623, key moment in the scientific revolution, Galileo, the father of modern science, says, right, if we're going to make progress here, we need a purely mathematical science, right, purely quantitative, 
fucked up all this kind of fuzzy, unclear, imprecise stuff. We just want it all to be in maths. But he understood quite well from the start that you can't capture the qualities of experience in these terms. You know, you can't capture an equation, the, you know, the, the redness of a sunset, that, ex that experience, the quality in your experience. So he said, right, well, if we want a quantitative science, we need to take consciousness outside of the domain of science. So Galileo set up this worldview in which there's this radical division between the quantitative domain of science and the qualitative domain of consciousness, consciousness with its colors and sounds and smells and tastes. Uh, and that, that was the start of mathematical physics. It was only once consciousness with its qualities was out of the way that mathematical physics is possible. So I think just, just finally, I think this is so important because I think what really motivates people to materialism, I think, is this sense that, look, physical science is great. Look, it's done such amazing things. Of course, it'll one day explain consciousness. I think that's rooted in a misunderstanding of the history of science. Physical science is amazing, but it's been amazing precisely since Galileo designed it to exclude consciousness, right? And the fact that it's done well since it put consciousness on one side doesn't mean it's going to do well when we bring consciousness back in. So, yeah, so, so physical science alone just wasn't designed. It's, it's all part of that thing that it's, it's a, it, it wasn't designed for this explanatory task. It was designed for dealing with publicly observable phenomena with mathematics. It was designed for this thing that's, this thing that's not publicly observable that involves qualities and trying to explain these unobservable qualities of consciousness. It's a totally different explanatory task. Hmm. I'm trying to think about, since reading the book, I was, I was trying to sort of consider my position. I think I probably came into this as what would be classed as a materialist and presuming that an emergent quality of a bunch of different neurons firing can be the phenomenon of experiencing something more than just the neurons firing in the same way as when you get a color wheel you know, you got all the colors of a rainbow and you look at them and you're like, okay, this is a bunch of things. But then if I spin it, something inherent changes. It's no longer individual colors. It turns white. Does it turn white? I haven't done this experiment since I was about yeah. seven. Um, I'm going to be abused on the internet for not knowing something a seven-year-old knows. Um, yeah, it, it turns white. So perhaps individually, if you were to look at the makeup of the brain, this is what it is. But mm. when things combine together, there is an emergent property, something that is a phenomenon of being that particular connection of things. Is that insufficient? That's a it's a very nice analogy. Yeah, yeah. So that's that sounds like the materialist position. But well, I don't know. So the word emergence is is, is a bit slippery. So I like to distinguish. Feeling like Deepak Chopra again. Deepak's ears are burning tonight. Deepak, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You gotta you gotta you gotta precisely define these things. So there's strong emergence and weak emergence. So so strong emergence is the David Chalmers view that yeah he thinks consciousness emerges from the physical but only because of these extra laws of nature that bridge the gap. Whereas weak emergence is, you don't need extra laws of nature. You just, you know, it's just like water, the liquidity of water, you know? So I think if it, it I, I would, if you're going for that weak emergent is materialist position, what's the problem? So I think what we'd need is, is, is an explanation. We'd need an explanation of the qualities of consciousness in terms of the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling of the kind to take an analogy 
the kind of explanation we have about the boiling point of water, right? If you study the chemistry of water, you have a totally satisfactory explanation of why water boils when it does. We want that kind of explanation, right? Now, but I think to do that, if you were to come up with that kind of explanation, you'd have to be able to describe the qualities of experience in your theory. So say you give me your theory explaining the redness of red experience in terms of electrochemical signaling. Your theory would have to describe in the language of physical science the redness of the red experience and then account for it in more fundamental terms. And I, and I just don't think you could do that. I don't, it's, it's, it's the wrong kind of Do we of even have a language at the moment that you could do that in? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's famously kind of ineffable, isn't it? Meaning you, you can't, you, you have to have the experience to be able to do it. You can't, so yeah, if we, if, we, if we could do that, you could convey to a, a blind since birth neuroscientist the character of a red experience. And you can't do that. You have to actually have the experience. So, so, so it's a kind of two-stage thing. I think there's an expressive or descriptive limitation to physical science that it, it can't even describe these qualities. And I think that entails an explanatory limitation because I think if we were to explain the qualities, we'd have to be able to describe them first in the theory and we can't even do that. So it's not just, oh, we haven't worked it out yet. It's, it's in principle, this couldn't be done because they're just totally different kinds of yeah. concept. And, and, more, and just to make the point one more time that this was never what physical science was in the business of. It's, it's never been the point of it. I th- yeah. So I think we're going through a phase of history where we're so blown away by how well it's gone. Look, we're we winning. Say- we're just continuing to win every single match that we enter. Yeah. It's 10-0, 10-0, <laughs> 10-0. And then you come up yeah, against an opponent saying- you can't even hit the goal against. Yeah, we want to say it can do everything. You know, it's, it's, oh, this is it. And it gets into people's identity, this sense, oh, we found the way, we found the truth. Mm. But, you know, I think it's, it's gone so well because Galileo essentially gave it a limited focus task that isn't applicable to, you know, to absolutely everything. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's the thought. I think my view of the human brain and consciousness was informed quite heavily by getting into a lot of evolutionary psychology last year. Um, and I realized upon reading your book that I've been asking myself the wrong questions or I've been giving myself a explanation of consciousness, which is satisfactory for how it feels phenomenologically, but insufficient to explain why it is the way it is. So for instance, learning a lot about pair bonding and the reason that we have reciprocal altruism or the reason that pain feels like pain or the reason that we have abstract thought. Like one of the um, explanations, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the reason that we have abstract thought is so that we can plan doing a thing and see the potential outcomes without having to do it. It also means that we're able to predict what us saying a thing to another person, which would have been we're highly social species, I can predict what Philip's response to me saying this thing will be, and then I'm able to gauge this theory of mind, right? I'm able to gauge how I should, this sort of metacognizant game, I can play this persona, and I can cultivate myself toward it. But it seems like that can all be fine. And also, based on 
evolutionary psychology doesn't seem to massively be debated about why we have those particular like it, it makes sense it's a fairly satisfactory explanation that by having those particular abilities for abstraction we're able to do these things and everybody knows what it's like to make a plan and to think about how it might go or how it might fail and etc etc but that that doesn't actually seem to be the same question that we're talking about here um and that kind of was uncomfortable and interesting for me to see at the same time i was like i've answered the wrong question correctly that i i wouldn't say it's the wrong question that's really i i think these are just different questions it depends yes. what, what you're interested in and what you're trying to do that, that stuff you can talk about is all great and important so my colleague chiara brazo is interested in you know how the brain you know constructs a theory of mind that is to say a an understanding of the mental states of others and the role of mirror neurons and what mirror neurons tell us about and it's it's quite good we teach together so i she does the more grounded sciencey stuff and i'm more sort of the more abstract philosophical so you know cater to both pre preferences among the students but i mean that these it's not either or it depends what you so it depends what we're trying to do so one way of explaining consciousness is a sort of historical explanation is you know why the kinds of consciousness, the kinds of mental state we have are adaptive and good for survival and, and that's why they've, they've, they've evolved. So that's a different kind of explanation to, that sort of historical explanation is different to what Thomas Nagel calls a constitutive explanation, which is just, you know, right now, just what is it that makes the stuff in my brain right now produce feelings and experiences so that's not a historical question about how we got here it's just you know what's what's going on when i wake up in the morning that uh, how do we bridge that explanatory gap between the purely quantitative story of the brain and the qualities we immediately apprehend in our experience it's just it's just a different task and it, you know talking about evolution i think early on after darwin many philosophers and psychologists actually saw the connection to um well the view we haven't got onto that i defend panpsychism um people like william james saw it fitted very well with a darwinian framework so if you know if you're not a panpsychist you have to think and this might be a good way to sort of hint at the view you just have to think there's just utterly non-conscious stuff getting more and more complicated and then suddenly a miracle happens Poof. consciousness appears whereas if you're a panpsychist the idea would be what there was before life would unimaginably simple forms of experience and then natural selection molds them into more complicated forms of experience uh, so you know th these aren't competing stories at all before we get on to panpsychism i learned the terms chronological chauvinism and time racism from you <laughs> i can't believe that that's even a thing oh you've, you've definitely you've, you've read my book that thing. <laughs> um yeah um well i guess i guess i came up with that actually teaching philosophy of time and trying to sort of get it across in a vivid jokey way for the students so uh yeah i mean there's this well this is kind of a tangent but for, in philosophy of time i guess there are broadly speaking two views one is which what one it one of which is only the present moment exists you know the past has ceased to be the future's not yet here a sort of common sense view. So on that view, there's something really special about 20, I was going to say 2020, 2021. It's the only year that actually exists. 
Whereas the other sometimes called four dimensionalist view is that all moments of time exist equally. You know, the people fighting the Battle of Hastings in 1066, people setting up colonies on Mars in 4,000. You know, it's all, they're all, their bodies are equally solid. Their experiences are equally real. And then the thought beyond on that view, if you think there's something special about 6th of January, 2021, your kind of time racist, this is chronological chauvinist. You think there's something special about your time. I love uh, those terms but, uh, so much, I mean, man. I love it's, those it's, terms. It's not an actual thing in the sense that, you know, people are kicking up a fuss about this and demanding their right. People in the past are demanding their <laughs> rights. I think it was just a jokey way I sort of thought. To, I love it. I, and if if you are listening, Carlo Ravelli, please reply to my emails because I want to get you on to talk about the philosophy of time oh. from your perspective. Oh, he's he's writing and he's contributing to, I've got a special issue of uh, academics, uh, scientists, philosophers, uh, special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies responses to my to my book, and he's one of one of the contributors. No way! Very, That's very cool. cool. That guy's a, that guy's an animal. I, I think he'll be slightly critical. Okay, so we've we've sort of skirted around it, and we've we've laid the landscape. We have two popular, but as far as you're concerned, insufficient theories or just incorrect theories. What do you propose? Yeah. So. The panpsychist view I propose is it's a very specific form of panpsychism. And so there's been a resurgence of interest in this view. Um, you know, I guess for a lot of the 20th century, it was kind of laughed at insofar as it was thought of at all. But it, in academic philosophy, there's been a real resurgence of interest in the last five or 10 years, largely due to the rediscovery of certain important work by uh, from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to experimentally confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity after the First World War. Um, so, yes, yeah, as, I, as I often say, I'm inclined to think these guys did for the science of consciousness in the 1920s what Darwin did for the science of life in the 19th century. And it I've was a tragedy say, of history. I, I've heard you say before um, it was lost and people didn't... Like, what, mm. what, what do you mean it was lost? Well, it just... It just was almost totally forgotten about for, I guess, I mean, look, you've got the, it was 1927, 1928, and then you've got, you know, this was a real heyday, I think, of really interesting philosophy connecting up science and philosophy. And, and then we have, what, the Great Depression, Second World War. People have a lot on their minds after the Second so World War. So it's not as then, if it was, like, physically lost Oh no, um, not lost books that, that were then recent. It was just something which no, didn't land with the academic community, not, didn't get absorbed, didn't get developed. After after the after the war, Second World War, I think you've got a real kind of anti-philosophy zeitgeist. People like the logical positivists who thought, who tried to have this idea where that any question that can't be answered by an experiment is meaningless gibberish. And so this dominates for a long time in a very kind of hard materialist viewpoint. And then, um, and as, as I said, consciousness was not really seen as a serious scientific stuff. So I think it's only once people... People dealt with consciousness by pretending it didn't exist. <laughs> and then I think from the end of the 20th century, people start to think, hold on, it does exist. I feel pain, you know. This. And so we we start to get a resurgence of interest and people have eventually found their way, I think because of finding deep difficulties with these conventional options of dualism and materialism. And there's been a lot of excitement that this is a, a middle way that sounds a bit wacky, but that avoids the difficulties of these two traditional options. Um, 
Okay, should I should I describe? So the the starting point of Russell and Eddington was that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is, and I thought that was just the most absurd thing I'd ever heard when I first heard it. Because you know, you you read a physics textbook, you seem to learn all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter, but actually, on on reflection, it turns out that for all its richness. Physics is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, what it does. You know, physics tells us, for example, that particles have mass and charge, and these properties are completely defined in terms of what they do. Things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration, it's all about behavior, what stuff does. Um, so, so what's wrong with that? So that intuitively, at least, there's, there's, there's more to what something is than what it does. So I like to give a kind of chess piece analogy, right? If you're playing chess, you're interested in what the pieces do, right? You're interested in the moves you can make, the pieces you can take. But if you're, suppose you're someone who collects high-end luxury chess pieces, then you're interested in the substance of the pieces themselves. You want pieces made of gold or silver rather than plastic or cheap metal. Uh, so this is what philosophers call the intrinsic nature of a thing, you know, what, what it is in what it is considered independently of what it does. So now think about fundamental particles, like an electron, you know, you might very well be interested in what physics tells us about the, about the behavior of an electron, what it does. But you might also be interested in the intrinsic nature of an electron, what an electron is considered independently of what it does. And about this, physics just has nothing to say. So the thought is there's actually this huge hole in our standard scientific theory of the universe. Physics gives us this rich information about what stuff does, but tells us nothing about its intrinsic nature. So what's this got to do with consciousness? So I think the genius of Russell and Eddington was to bring together two problems. The problem we've just been discussing, the problem of intrinsic natures, the physics doesn't tell us the intrinsic nature of stuff, and the problem of consciousness, to bring them together and to see that they can be given a unified solution. So, so problem number one, um, physical science tells us a purely quantitative story of the brain and leaves out the qualities we know in experience. Problem number two, physical science just describes the behavior of matter and doesn't tell us anything about its intrinsic nature. So the unified solution is given by the hypothesis that maybe the qualities of experience are the intrinsic nature of matter. So we answer, we solve both problems at once. So we, we find a place for consciousness, for those qualities that physical science leaves out. And we have an answer to the question, what is the intrinsic nature of matter? Um, so, so this is, it's, it's a beautifully, so the idea, it's a beautifully simple, elegant way of integrating consciousness into our scientific story. It's not dualism, right? There's, this, there's just matter just particles or fields, but matter can be described from two perspectives. Physics describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of what it does, but matter from the inside in terms of its intrinsic nature is constituted of the qualities of consciousness. So that's the basic idea. How does that manifest? How does the internal state manifest? It, it can't be any more than can be described in a materialistic worldview, no? So. So let's start with, so 
coming, you know, thinking about fundamental particles. So, so the, the view is that fundamental particles are, have some kind of very, very, very simple experience. Now, when people hear that, they always interpret it dualistically. So they always think, oh, the electron has its physical properties that science studies like mass, spin, and charge, and then these weird consciousness properties. The, the physicist Sabine Hossenfelder had a recent a blog post, it's about a year ago now probably, a blog post criticizing panpsychism, but she was interpreting it in this dualistic way, and she was saying physics doesn't show any sign of these weird non-physical properties. But that's that's not the view. The view is that mass, the physical properties, mass, spin, and charge, are forms of consciousness because how, how do we make sense of that because physics doesn't tell us what these properties are it just tells us what they do uh and so that leaves open the theoretical possibility that they are forms of consciousness so coming up to take your pain at the, at the level of the brain your pain and the pattern of neuronal firings that corresponds to it the idea is that in, in a sense they're just the same thing when when the when the neuroscientist studies your brain, it's just, it, it's, she's not really studying what it is. She's just studying what it does and what its parts do. When you attend to the qualities of your experience, that is the intrinsic nature of your brain, the intrinsic nature of the brain states. So they're just two sides of the same coin. So, I mean, let me come back to you. Your question was, how does it manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself as the behavior that physics studies. Matter is what consciousness does, right? There's just consciousness, that there's nothing but consciousness. But physics describes what consciousness does. That's the view. So there aren't two things. What is the bottom rung for consciousness, in your, in your opinion, then? Do, does the soil have consciousness? Do plants have consciousness? What about a rock? What about a... a tree that's now being chopped down what about a tree that's about to die yeah so i mean one common misunderstanding it doesn't literally mean that everything is conscious despite the etymology of the word you know pan means everything psyche means mind everything has mind but the basic commitment of panpsychism is that the fundamental building blocks of reality have incredibly simple forms of experience so it could be fundamental particles that's the way i guess it's conventionally standardly talked about it but actually many many physicists many theoretical physicists tend to think that actually the fundamental entities are not little particles but universe-wide fields and then particles are understood as sort of local excitations of fields so if you interpret that kind of view in a panpsychist way then the the fundamental forms of consciousness would be the intrinsic nature of those universe-wide fields. So that's the basic commitment of the view. And the idea would be that the consciousness of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from those more fundamental forms of consciousness. But your question you asked was, which other things are consciousness? So, so the fundamental things are conscious, whether they're particles or universe-wide fields or whatever. Humans and animals are conscious. What other things are conscious? I, I think that's an, an open scientific question that we're in the very early days. And I don't think it's a question for philosophers like me to answer. I think it's a question for scientists to answer. And how do they do that? By studying the correlations between brain activity and consciousness and trying to get systematic. There are a couple of proposals, the integrated information theory or the global workspace theory that we could perhaps talk about. But 
I mean, to be honest, I think it's such early days that we're really, you know, in the dark at the moment. So it's it's an open empirical question. Uh, so I, I guess I'm inclined to think, you know, like anybody else, that tables and rocks probably aren't conscious, but that just that they're made up of little things that probably are conscious. What are the strongest criticisms that you see of panpsychism? Yeah, good question. So, so I guess the um, what's what's generally seen as there are a lot of different things, but what's generally seen as the biggest problem, the so-called combination problem. Which I mean, there's a couple of different ways of making this precise, but the basic idea is, you know, the panpsychist wants to account for my consciousness in terms of the consciousness of the particles ultimately making up my brain. How how does that work? You know, we feel like we understand how you put together parts of a car engine and you get a functioning car engine. We have a grip on that. But how do you put together lots of little minds and make a big mind? That seems hard to make sense of. It seems almost unintelligible. You can't build a mind in the way you can build a house. Um, So there are various, um, you know, I'd say that the the energies of the contemporary panpsychist research program are, are, uh, focused on and you know i could i could run you through through some options and and my own favored view but i mean i would say i guess i say like nobody's got a total complete theory of consciousness it's such early days but it seems to me that the the problems facing the panpsychist are more tractable than the problems facing these other views you know if you're a materialist you've got to bridge the gap between the purely quantitative properties of physical science and the qualities the subjective qualities of experience if you're a panpsychist, did I say panpsychist the first time? If you're a panpsychist, you've got to, you just got to bridge the gap between simple forms of experience and more complex forms of experience. Um, you know, I could talk about some of my favorite solutions and the different approaches people take, but I think it's a problem we can potentially make progress on and are in the business of making progress on, in the process of making progress on. Is your view of panpsychism compatible with consciousness emerging from artificial general intelligence if and when we manage to create it? Uh, it's certainly compatible with artificial consciousness. Um, What's that mean? Well, just m- man-made, human-made things becoming conscious. You know, so as I say, I think it's an empirical question. We're trying to work out what kinds of physical activity bring about emergent. So I think there's always consciousness at the fundamental level, but I don't think there's always consciousness at the emergent level. So it's an empirical question. If we can work out, I think we're a long way from doing so, but if we can work out what is necessary and sufficient for consciousness, then we can maybe build a thing that, that has that. That's, you know, that this, you know, this is why the, the panpsychist is maybe much closer to, you know, we don't believe in souls or something, you know, extra like that. But uh, I mean, you, the way you phrased it there, you said artificial general intelligence. So, I mean, I guess I would want to sharply distinguish consciousness from intelligence, at least the way that's standardly understood in AI is um, something functionally defined uh, in, in terms of certain kinds of sophisticated behavioral response. So I think that's not necessarily anything to do with consciousness. You could have a computer with very high levels of intelligence in that sense without having any kind of inner conscious experience at all so there's two different questions you know what is required for something to be intelligent and what is required for something to be sentient or conscious 
But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I think panpsychists would probably say all the same things as a, as a materialist or probably even a dualist about um, artificial consciousness, the possibility of. Yeah, that, I mean, that question of whether or not consciousness comes along for the ride, so to speak, and it's just there is some sort of point that you get to where there's enough intelligence or, or enough processing uh -huh. going on um, for it to happen. That's the switch that you were talking about before, right? It's like either is it a gradation of levels of con of slightly less conscious to slightly more conscious, or is there a a point, something that you hit? Are we going to get a point where the internet is so big that it becomes conscious? There's simply so much information processing around. Uh, and these questions from Nick Bostrom and the other guys at the Future of Humanities Institute have been something I've really enjoyed thinking about ever since I read Superintelligence. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm making a pig's ear of it, but I'm trying to work out how this maps onto what you do. I see. Good. Okay, I get what you'd say. So, yeah, I mean, well, just in terms of the internet being conscious as a slight digression, I mean, the integrated information theory, one of the dominant neuroscientific models that connects, I mean, a basic idea is that consciousness co consciousness corresponds to the level at which you have most integrated information so in this view this cup of tea isn't conscious probably because there's more integrated information in the individual molecules than there is in the, the, the liquid as a whole in the brain there's there's consciousness because there's much more integrated information in parts of the brain than in the in in the um in the individual neurons i really like so, that i really like that distinction yeah. i think that's really useful so if you could one day have if the in, if there becomes so much integrated information in the internet that there's more in the internet than the human brain this theory predicts you know, we don't know if it's true or not but it predicts it has some empirical confirmation that um the internet we'd be absorbed into sort of a an internet mind and we'd cease to be conscious in our own right but um how, how does it connect to Bostrom? but i guess bostrom is very much a materialist and so as an I don't think consciousness arises from um, just in, you know in intelligence and information processing, processing yeah. and I, because I think that's the materialist story that it's the the purely quantitative story of information processing. I don't think you can get consciousness out of that because I think consciousness is something qualitative. It's to do with the underlying intrinsic nature of matter, but it could be just as a matter of empirical fact that. You know, the two could end up going together. It could end up, it's just a science, open scientific question that it could be that certain types of sophisticated um, information processing do give rise to emergent consciousness. But in my view, that wouldn't be because of the information processing per se, but because of the intrinsic nature of matter underlying that information processing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it I does. a bit abstract. No, it, All right, does, brilliant. It, it does. Um... It's, yeah, it's whether you think consciousness is, I think consciousness is sort of the stuff of matter. It's mm. the kind of intrinsic, it's real, concrete. You know, if, if you, vivid example, you know, if you smell a really bad smell, that horrible smell is the stuff of your brain at that moment. So it's that it's a real concrete, uh, it's not just some kind of more abstract notion of information processing. It's the stuff of the world. I should say that more often. Um, <laughs> do that at the same time yeah. people will start thinking i'm profound don't they? you are mate. you need a world. you need a, a skull or a bust <laughs> you need a bust in your hand um why so sort of wrapping all of this up why does this really matter like how does consciousness relate to the meaning of life for us mm. 
Okay, nice simple question to finish with. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, the, the final chapter of my book, the first four chapters are sort of building the um, cold-blooded scientific philosophical case for this view. The final chapter explores the kind of meaning of life, implications for human existence. And um, I mean, you know, the, the first reason this matters, the most straightforward reason this matters, I think it's intrinsically important to try and work out the ultimate nature of reality. <laughs> Not for everyone, but it's, I think it's it's important that some people are doing that, trying to have our best guess at what reality is like. I guess most people think that's a purely scientific question. I, I disagree with that slightly. I think there's a real role for philosophy, especially in the case of consciousness. But so that's just important. But but I do think this isn't. It's more than that in, with consciousness. It's not just an abstract puzzle, because you know consciousness is at the root of human identity. I think fundamentally we relate to each other as creatures with feelings and experiences. Consciousness is sort of the basis of everything. I think that's important and of value in human existence. And yet, I believe, I would argue, our official scientific worldview doesn't have a place for it. So, and you know, to see that just, if you just consider for a moment what it's like to be you right now, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, those qualities, you know, our official scientific worldview tells you, tells us that all that's really going on in your head is the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling. I think that's just equivalent to saying those qualities you encounter in your experience don't really exist. And that's just kind of crazy. I think you know, nothing is more evident than the, the, the qualities of experience, the pleasure, the pain. And so I think we're in a crazy period of history where our official story of reality denies the existence of the one thing that's most evident and the one thing that is gives value to human life. And I think, you know, at some kind of subconscious level that I think that does lead to a, a profound sort of alienation and sense that we don't belong to the world, we don't fit in. Um, part of what Max Weber called the disenchantment of nature. So I mean, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on at the moment. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But I think this is a small part of it. And so, you know, I think the attraction of panpsychism is that, you know, um, it it accommodates both what we know about the world scientifically through public observation experiment and what we know about ourselves through our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. It, it brings both together in a single elegant picture of reality. So I think it's a it's a worldview that's um, it's it's both healthier and more true conception of reality. Um, yeah. I've got a theory that I've been working on for the last year or so about why we're seeing the sort of increase of, I would go as far as to say sort of pettiness and existential angst. So all of the abstract problems that people make for themselves. Um, and given the fact that for the first couple of million years of our evolution, all of the bottom things of Maslow's hierarchy of needs were super, super important and yet unfulfilled meant that we didn't have, like, oddly, an existential mm. crisis is a very luxurious bourgeois position to be in. Like, you can only afford yeah. to have an existential crisis if all of the bottom levels of that hierarchy of needs are already met. And now we've got the Amazon Prime, the TV, to watch the world's best shows on Netflix while you deliver Rua Michelin star steak to your house. Like, we have so much luxury and abundance 
that were actually afforded the opportunity to the bliss to have an existential yeah. crisis and wonder why am I here? What am I doing? What is my purpose? Why do I feel the things I feel? Why do I think the things I think? If you're being chased down by a tiger or a lion, you don't really have the opportunity to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, that that is a part of it. Um, I mean, I think there's lots of different reasons. I mean, what I feel, what I do feel comfortable about that historians of the future looking back, one thing that will be obvious to them is there was this huge crash in 2008 that brought the world to its knees and then the longest period of way squeeze since the Napoleonic War. And then all sorts of crazy politics, you know, no shit, Sherlock, you know, <laughs> it's fucking obvious. Sorry. As we're doing this, I need to it, say, as we're doing this, Trump is leading a protest to Capitol Hill, like as we're talking right now. And I've got, I don't know whether he's actually there. I think he was trying to flee to Scotland yeah. and Nicola Sturgeon said like, piss off. I don't want you here. Um, oh my God. But yeah, like I've just got this image of him with the MAGA hat on and a, a like a, a flag over his shoulder, marching, marching down, like Melania in arm. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you're you're right. There are Absolutely. a lot of crazy, crazy things going stuff. on. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's since the crash, and you know, I mean, if you just go back a bit further, twenty, you know, after the war, we had thirty years where we had very controlled capitalism. We put high taxes on the wealthy, and we had thirty years where society got more prosperous, got more equal. We had the sixties. And then the 80s onwards, we had Wild West capitalism, cut all the taxes on the wealthy and, um, you know, gross inequality. The bottom 50 percent in developed countries, their their percentage of national income has gone from, you know, 25 percent to 12 percent in the US. You know, it's it's when the center left parties haven't responded to that. I think I think, you know, to an extent that there are straightforward economic causes. But, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of different things going on here you know we, we don't know the loss of religion we don't know what the hell we're doing what it's all about i think that's a huge um, a huge part that in some circles feels trite to say and then in other circles feels novel like it depends on who i'm speaking to um mm. but that inner compulsion that people have to be connected to something greater than them to give mm. themselves a sense of scale and wonder you know it's why you're seeing a resurgence of minimalism, I think. You know, like Diogenes the Cynic two and a half thousand years ago was living out of a pot with a robe to wear. And 2020, one of the most popular YouTube channels on the internet is The Minimalists, the guys from The Minimalists. Like, what is that if it's not like a modern day reincarnation of what Diogenes was doing? Or people that decide to go and live out in the woods or people who decide Mm. to go and have transcendent experiences with psychedelics in the middle of the Amazon jungle, people who go and lie on the... uh, uh, a darkened uh, night and look at the sky yeah. what are we doing we're trying to give ourselves a sense of scale and connection and mm-hmm. reminding ourselves that we are insignificant but also somehow connected is that simply just the physical processes is that just us looking at the night sky in a way that our ancestors would have done therefore it makes us feel good or is there something more going on like all of this stuff is mm. what i like spending time thinking about and it's so satisfying even though you ever always come away with more questions than you do answers. It feels very satisfying to think about somehow. And, you know, there's the question of spirituality, but also that the social structures religion used to provide to bring communities together, mark the rites of passage, uh, this mark the seasons, you know, bring together people 
you know, not just because you live near each other, not, you know, so I'm actually, well, this is not something I'd like to write on, totally different topic to write more on. I'm, I describe myself as a, a non-believing Christian. So, oh, so, so you uh, like the tradition and you yeah, like the, which, the ritual. I, I, you know, and, the... and I, I attend church and I mean, like so many Jewish people, I, I know, you know, might attend synagogue, you know, with, even though they're not uh, believers in the traditional sense. And um, people think that's not an option for Christian. I think Christians, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, it's just, just this radical, do I believe these propositions? Do I? So, you know, I, I, I value the... Um, yeah, the, the 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 tradition and the, the the community and the marking of the rites of passage and the connecting to some kind of higher reality and um, you know I think in some ways it's um, a modern corruption. I think the the total focus on on belief. Uh, Karen Armstrong's written about this that it's um, the change of the ma- the meaning of the word belief. So the the Greek word pistos that we translate as faith or belief. Um, didn't mean belief in the modern sense. It meant something like commitment, engagement, having your heart in something. And when the Bible was first translated, uh, is it 16th, 17th century? I can't remember now. The word belief meant something kind of similar. Um, she quotes Shakespeare play where the character says, believe not by disdain, which means like, don't have your heart in your disdain. It was closer to the German word believen, meant sort of, you know, engagement, um, having your heart in something. And then with the scientific revolution, the word beliefs change meaning, and it now sort of means a kind of cold-blooded hypothesis about reality. It's much you know? more absolutist, right? Yeah. So now you read the Bible and you think Jesus really cared about what you, what theories of reality you have, and and um, you know your that salvation depends on it. Whereas actually, I mean, I've, it, it's good textual analysis looking at you know the way Jesus actually uses the word uh, faith. Is, is much to do much more to do with commitment and engagement. It's always when people have gone the extra mile. So it's not really belief in the in the modern sense. It's more about sort of a commitment to a possibility. Well, man, uh, I, I went to yeah. la- last year for my birthday. I went to Rome, and I did the Colosseum and the Roman Forum day one, and I did the Sistine Chapel and the Vatican day two. And man, like I've I've not been many. I've travelled a lot. And I've not been to many places that gave me the same sense of grandeur and perspective and wonder and beauty and awe and like all of the things that make the phenomenological experience of being human and being conscious like beautiful. And I was like, if this is the front end of the funnel for Christianity, like sign me up. Like it's (laughs) so nice. And you just think like this is, how could this not have inspired someone's belief, commitment you know, in the more traditional sense of the word, because it was just so, it was so gorgeous. Like it was a beautiful experience to be in there. Every time I go to Durham Cathedral, you know, that's the closest one to me. And I, yeah. go, I go with my mum like regularly and the, these high ceilings and the pillars and the that kind of like the, the echoes and the sound of everyone, the shuffling feet on flagstones. Like, it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it is a shame that we you have to kind of take it wholesale rather than piecemeal. And wrapping up your life in 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 something of that grandeur, you know what I, I always think of. You know, the, the secular world has adopted Christmas, and that's fantastic. You know, a beautiful celebration of light and joy in the middle of winter. But what it hasn't taken on is Easter, and I, you know, I think there's something wonderful about Easter that it's a sort of a celebra- a festival of misery, <laughs> followed by <laughs> followed by followed by a spring festival of hope. You know that, you know. 
period of dwelling on the horror of the world and and then turning to hope and you know and that those kind of marking of the seasons and yeah i think um I don't know. It's something about the, the human condition that that's really important. But you know, yeah. When I when I first returned to religion, actually, and I um I went to in Liverpool Cathedral around Christmas, and you know, it's absolutely beautiful music and wonderful choir, and speaking to the the vicar afterwards, and you know, saying I just know how literally I take these things, and and he said, well, I'm a pretty traditional believer. You know, I I think Jesus rose physically from the dead. But there are other ways of understanding it. And he gave me books by kind of really liberal Christians like Marcus Borg and Karen Armstrong, who, who believe in some kind of reality, higher reality, but take everything else non-literally. And, and so that just kind of blew me away because I was kind of raised Catholic. And I thought, you know, the first thing is, do I believe these things? But he just, you know, said you know, different ways of doing it. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe it's something to do with the Church of England. It's sorry, we've gone wildly off topic, haven't we? But, uh, you know, Maybe because it was set up because the king wanted a divorce. You know, maybe it doesn't have that heavy ideology. So it's such a broad, you know, there's some very conservative wings and there's some incredibly liberal wings. And yeah, anyway, I didn't mean to get on to Jesus. <laughs> no, I, I, it's it's good, man. It's something I think about an awful lot. Look, Philip, today's been like really, really fun. Galileo's error now in paperback. The U.S. paperbacks just come out, but uh, the the U.K. has always been paperback, actually. Yeah, Amazing! So that will be linked in the show notes below. Go and pick your copy up from Amazon. If you do use the link below, you will be supporting the podcast at no extra cost to yourself because they have to pay me a little a little kickback. Um, where else do you want to send people? Any other stuff you want to plug? Um, I'm on Twitter, Philip under slash underscore Goff, Philip with one L, G O F F. Uh, spend a lot of time arguing on Twitter too much uh my website philipgoffphilosophy.com i've also got a blog with the horrible title conscience and consciousness which is but anyway linked to from my website um um yeah that's about it probably awesome man look today's been really really fun i'm going to ask you for uh, some book suggestions when i get off and i'll uh, i'll post those on my instagram or probably in an upcoming newsletter at some point so make sure that you've signed up to that philip i really really enjoyed this it's fried some brain cells but kind of built some as well at the same time so thank you thank Thanks a lot, Chris. It's been a great discussion.